I bet if you were to just, if you were to, I was thinking about this just now, we're singing that song. Um, if you were to do um, a Google, if you were to Google top 500 selling songs of all time, I bet you 400, 450 of them would be songs about love. Um, love gone, well, love gone bad, maybe more, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, Paul McCartney sang. You'd think people would have had enough of silly love songs. And then he goes on to write, sing a love song, right? Um, this after being in the Beatles and singing All You Need Is Love, right? Um, there is no greater motive. At the cross, your, your love ran red. There's no greater motive for God so loved the world. Um, whatever you do, Scripture says, do it in love as if there's just no deeper, greater motive. Um, but, but what if it's something else that love wants to give us? Like what if there's a, if, if love being the greatest empowerment, love being the greatest compulsion, but then there's another motive in there that love wants to show or display, um, then what's the song about? Um, and then what if that other thing that love wants to give is mercy, which we're going to see next week. Um, have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love. That's next week, getting ahead. Um, so you do another Google of the top 500 songs. How many of them are about mercy? That's right. <laughs> One, I don't know. Has there ever been a great song about mercy on the radio? Right, because... Mercy implies, um, I mean, the word, if you, if you, I think if you go in your King James, you'd probably often find the word pity. Nobody wants to be pitied, right? I, I remember a few years ago uh, in one of the classes Kelly was teaching, she was going to offer like some extra credit or give some, some students the opportunity to redo an assignment. And she actually had a student say to her, I don't need your pity. Fine. Don't do the work then, <laughs> whatever you like. Um, just trying to show some compassion here, right? Um, just the, the idea of, of compassion and, and a sense of need, um, mercy implies that, that we're in a place of need and we can't work our way out of it, we can't achieve our way out of it, and nobody likes to feel like they're in that place. And as I think about the story we're going to talk about today, it's in 2 Samuel 11, if you haven't turned to there or clicked there yet. Um, it's a story of, of horrible, horrible sin. And I think in my own life, I think there's like a, a sin sweet spot when it comes to the mercy and compassion of God, like... When we look at this sin today, the temptation is to say, well, that's way too much. No, 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 no. This guy does not get mercy. He's gone above and beyond mercy. But then on the other hand, we, were, we are very, very tempted, and I thought about this all week. We're very tempted to look at this story and go, well, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near that bad. I'm not even bad enough to need mercy. Like, my sins are tiny in comparison to this, right? So... This is very, very careful today when we look at this story. Um, you've got David uh, uh, anointed to be king, yet not king for another, tw- what, 
15 years. Um, chosen as a teenager, becomes king at 30, spends those intervening years running from the king before him who's trying to kill him. Um, who, who, who slayed giants, had songs written about him. Um, and, and when Saul was being dethroned, the prophet said to him, God has chosen a man after his own heart to take your place. So we know David as the man after God's own heart. But even this, you go, how did that happen? Um, but Psalm 51 is where I'm heading. And Psalm 51 was written because of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Now, you might have, I call them headlines, little story titles um, in your Bible, little headings. Um, I don't know what your heading says in your Bible translation. Mine just says David and Bathsheba. Very innocuous. Like if you'd never read the Bible and you came up, oh wow, there's, there's David and somebody named Bathsheba. I wonder what this is going to be about, right? Um, or maybe you have a heading or a headline or maybe you've heard sermons. Um, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. No problem. Just reading the Bible there. Um, <laughs> um, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and I'm going to propose it's worse even than that. As a matter of fact, I would even propose if maybe if, if we put women in charge of writing the headlines, that the ladies might put a different headline to this story. Um, and, and I want to say this as well. It would be very, very easy in this story uh, to make this a story about temptation, right? And all of the moments that David had to stop and repent and not give in to the next stage of the temptation. There are many in this story where David could have stopped and said, Lord, I repent. Please, I need your mercy. I need you. We're going to stop right here. And he never stopped right there. Um, I can make it a story about that. It could be a story, a very much a story about James 1, 13 through 15. If anyone is tempted, do not let them say, I was tempted by God. For God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when when, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it is death. Right? So desire conceives a little sin baby. And when sin baby is born, it is baby death. Right? And, and we, could, we could follow through this story and we could just follow David's desire and the situation where he entered into temptation. As a matter of fact, we could start right off the bat and make this a sermon about temptation. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. 
And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and was walking around the roof on his palace. So you could, you could just make this a sermon about temptation. And you could say, temptation often hits you when you're bored and you should be doing something better. Am I right or am I right? You guys remember Jeff McLaughlin, who went to church here for a long time. He, he's got a weekend job now, but he was, a, he was a constable for years. And he always had this saying, there's nothing worse than a bored cop, right? <laughs> right? You, you put a, a, a person who's just bored and you give them the means to like, just live out something crazy and they're boredom, right? Here's a king who should just be doing something else, right? But, but that's not how we're going to approach this, right? Um, what I really want us to see today and for the next several weeks as we look at Psalm 51 is, is the fact that David did give in to temptation, desire did conceive, and it was catastrophic for David, for David's family, for someone else's family, and for the nation catastrophic, and the question is, how do you ever respond to that? How do you ever respond in your own heart to that? And my hope is that we would all see, yeah, I follow my desires the wrong direction, and I bring death into my life and into my family. Um, How do I respond to that? So here we are. David gets up from bed. He's walking around the rooftop, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, well, that's, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers, messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Um, now, let me, let me keep reading. So David sent his, this word to Joab. Remember, Joab's out fighting, leading the army. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. So Joab goes and finds Uriah off in the battle, sends it back to Uriah, to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him, How, how's Joab doing and how the soldiers were and, and how the war was going? And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and, and wash your feet. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, right? So, so Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Um, Why didn't you go home? Implication being, and be with your wife. And Uriah said to David, well, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So, what's happening here? It's obvious that the most godly man in the story is Uriah. There's no temple, there's just 
this tabernacle, a tent, and that's where the ark is, and all the armies out in tents. So who, who do I think I am to, to use my, the privilege you've given me right now that, that it's at my disposal to go to my house and be with my wife? None of the other soldiers can do that. Who do I think I am to take advantage of such a thing? Uriah doesn't know what David knows. And so David is, is facing the man whose wife he slept with and whom David is trying to use to cover up his sin. But let's look at some of the words. Let's just go back through this. And I highlighted a bunch of words. It says that David sent someone to find her. And then David sent messengers to take her. And then it says, David commanded, send me Uriah the Hittite. And then when Uriah comes home, he says, go down to your house. And then David sent a gift to follow him. Like, everything David says in this story is a command. David has the power, David has the position to just command people to do whatever he wants them to do. So if the heading in your Bible says, like, David's adultery with Bathsheba, this is a very, very one-sided thing that's happening here. As a matter of fact, two things you know about Bathsheba. She's actually... Why was she bathing where he... Because it was, she was coming out of her monthly uncleanness and she was purifying herself. So he sees her doing something holy and then he starts giving commands and, and think about this. What do you think is running through her mind when she's on her way to the king's place? If your husband is off at war and the king sends to you to talk to you, She's probably on her way thinking, my husband's dead. It's probably going to be bad news. So here's the man with the power and the command. Here's this holy young lady. David's in his mid-40s-ish by now. He, he took her and, and slept with her. Um, let's just say it's very one-sided. There are a lot of people who would say this is more of a rape situation than an adultery situation. Um, she gets pregnant. Sins for Uriah. He'll help cover this up. Just blame it on him. Uriah doesn't play along. And David said, okay, we'll stay one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. Again, he's commanding. He's stay here, command. I will send you back, command. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk, thinking he'll be out of his mind. He'll want to go be with his wife this time. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat along among his master's servants. He did not go home. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So now David is handing out more orders. 
and he's getting other people. Right now, Joab is faced with a temptation. Wait, what? He's asking me to kill someone. And Uriah carries the letter. Uriah is carrying in his hand a letter that he's not going to open that is his death notice. Like, how far has David sunk? And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, among them Uriah the Hittite, who died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle... The king knows what it's like to be in battle, right? This king's been in battles. He's going to ask this question. He's going to get angry, and he's going to ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? And he even gets specific. Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerub Besheth? Didn't a woman drop a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If there's anything anybody knows, you don't throw right up to the wall or shoot at you, drop stuff on you. It's a good way to die. What a horrible strategy. So if he says to this, just say, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And the messenger's got to be thinking, okay, this is strange, but I'll do that. And the messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. And when the archers shot arrows at your servants in the wall, some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, do not let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Uriah, Joab. At this point, Uriah is nothing more than an expendable number to David. Hey, listen, guys die in battle. Don't let Joab get down about this. People die, right? Death happens. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And you see where she is now. She's been impregnated by the king, so she's pregnant. Her husband is dead. Like, what a deeply difficult time. And after the time of mourning was over, David let her mourn, and he brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And then you have what could potentially be the greatest understatement in all the Old Testament. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was displeased. And however much stock you put in any of those words, the Lord or displeased, is like how much emotion goes into that. Oh, the Lord was displeased, or whoa, the Lord is displeased, right? That's two different ways of thinking about that. Now, there are lots of ways you could describe David's sin. There's lots of ways David needs to be convicted about his sin, right? What has he done? He's he's lied. Um, He's adultery, rape, rape. He sent someone to their death. He's lied. He's deceived. 
He's used his power and his position, the privilege of his kingship to do unthinkable things. Yes, the Lord is displeased. But if, let's put it this way. If you were in charge of making sure David was very, very convicted by the fact that the Lord was displeased, what would you say to him? What exact sins would you point out? Because the Lord sent a prophet to David, and the prophet does something very unusual. He didn't just send an angel to say, hey, David, you did one, two, three, four, and five, and all those things are bad. As a matter of fact, how many of the Ten Commandments did David already break? right? By the end of the story, he's working half of them, right? So he didn't send an angel to say, hey, let's list this, David. Do you feel bad about this? He sends Nathan the prophet, and Nathan tells him a story. Is this really the time for a story, Nathan? And this is the story story he tells. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. In other words, he didn't even have enough sheep for one of his sheep to have a baby. He had to buy this little ewe lamb. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Sounds like he went down to the shelter and picked out a puppy, right? And brought it into his home. It's like, oh man, how am I ever going to eat this thing? Oh, come on in, right? Jump up in the bed, sit at the table and eat. Yeah, it's like it becomes one of the kids. Now a traveler came to the rich man. Oh, the rich man has company. But that's okay. The rich man has plenty to feed and take care of this guest, right? But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. What? That's bananas. Who would do such an evil thing? How in the world did this rich man get in the mindset that he needed the poor man's only lamb? that he would just take it from him. And it says, David burned with anger. You're right, he did, because he's a man of justice. (laughs) And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die, and he must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Whoever did this needs to die. Whoever did such an act of injustice, what kind of rich, powerful man would be so discontent and so greedy that he would take something from somebody else? That guy needs to die. Then Nathan said to David, as Jeff and I were talking in the foyer this morning, you the man. Now you are, you're the man. You're the man, David. You did this. This is what the Lord The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you. You, You've got got wives. I gave all that into your arms. I gave all Israel. I gave you Judah. I united the kingdom under you. 
You've got power over all of this. You've got everything at your disposal. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. In other words, I gave you your needs, and I gave you wants, and I gave you wants on top of your needs. I was generous to you, David. Oh, but listen to this. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be his own, your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God didn't, wasn't tricked. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of your eye, the Hittite, to be your own. David, you had it all, right? So what's the story about? It's the story about greed. It's a story about discontentment, right? The, the, the presenting sin, if you will, is what? Murder, taking someone's wife, injustice, right? At least that's the story Nathan that's the story Nathan tells but he says underneath all that there's a deeper deeper problem the lord was generous to you and you were discontent the lord was generous to you and you were greedy the lord brought you from nothing to here and you used the power he gave you to do evil and to despise the one who gave it to you you took you took after I had given, 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 you took what was not your own. And he says, this is out of the, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And the rest of the story, if you follow the rest of the story, David basically lost all of his sons. He's going to lose the baby from Bathsheba. Absalom's going to rise up against him. David's going to have to run. I mean, the rest of the story is just a train wreck for David. Then one of the other David's sons get killed. Absalom gets killed. It's just the rest of 2 Samuel is just horrible. Um, and it starts here, right here. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who's close to you. That's Absalom. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'm going to do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It took Nathan telling a story about a rich man and some sheep to get David to see. And just, this sounds like a very understated confession. But Psalm 51 comes out of this verse, which we'll see for the next three weeks. But I have sinned. And, and that feels a little like, like if there were Twitter and this is all David tweeted, I've sinned against the Lord. Oh my goodness. That tweet would go viral and millions of people would be jumping on his case. Oh no. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Joab. You sinned against this whole nation sinned against the Lord. Well, he knows that. 
But as we will see in the coming weeks, against you, you only have sin. There's always someone bigger in the room. Yeah. And Nathan simply says, the Lord has taken away your sin. I don't know. We don't have video. Maybe we'll get that one day. The Lord's taken away your sin. And you're like, that was too easy. (laughs) Well, for one, it wasn't. There's more. And number two, you're not going to keep reading 2 Samuel and go, that was too easy. You're going to go, ooh, this is awful. It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing that there'd be consequences and both can happen, right? You could pull the nail out of the hole, but there's still going to be a hole, as the farmer said, about forgiveness, right? And there's even the rest of this chapter is awful. So you say this was a, this was a, a story about rape or murder and, and lying Nathan says, it's all of that, but the sin under the sin was a, a man who despised what the Lord had done for him and was greedy and was a thief. Like, we're feeling pretty decent when it was about murder and rape. <laughs> it's like, whew. But when you start getting to the sin under the sin, Right? Whoever, the proverb says, whoever despises the poor despises their maker. David has despised Uriah and Bathsheba's maker. David's answer was quick and passionate. He raged against injustice. And in doing so, he condemned himself to death. And I almost wonder if David would have preferred. Because instead, he had to watch everything around him die. It's interesting, Jesus used this very same method uh, to convict the Pharisees of their sin. You remember there was this vineyard and every time the vineyard owner would send a steward to take care of the vineyard, these other people would run them off or kill them. And eventually the vineyard owner sent his very own son and the the bad guys were like, ooh, if we kill the son, we can take the vineyard. And so they sent the the son and he killed them and they were like, yes, it's ours. And, And... And then they were like, the Pharisees were like, wait a minute. I think he's talking about us. (laughs) We're the bad guys in that story. And he's the son. God's the owner of the vineyard. He's calling himself the son of God and us the bad guys who ate the son and are trying to kill the son. And guess what they did? They got mad and tried even harder to kill him. All right, so, so when the story comes down from the prophet and when the story comes down to Jesus, there are two responses. You either let the story break you or you let the story harden you. And when the story came down to, to David, it broke him. It broke him. And that's a big difference, right? We don't, we don't do well with apologies. I'm telling you, we, we, good gracious, let somebody apologize who's got any sort of you know, who's well-known, and I mean, they will play the video over and over just looking for any chink in it to go, that's not an apology. Yeah, it's, let me show you an apology, right? And, and it's true. I mean, when somebody's like, I'm sorry that hurt you. No, that's not an apology, right? If it is so much wiggly going on there, and yeah, that's not an apology, but um, Psalm 51's an apology, right? Now, there's a lot of sins, a lot of sins under the sin, and... and, and Again, this could be a a sermon about temptation and avoiding it. 
but David could have avoided this. This is really just an introduction as to why David needed mercy. At the heart of it all was a heart of ingratitude, a heart of discontent, a heart of greed, a massive, massive failure to love his neighbor. Whew, that is not loving your neighbor. And underneath all that is a despising of the Lord's name. And if we break it down to that, well, then that's a little different, right? Let me just put it this way. If you had this much power and authority, would your heart be ready for it? Like if you, just, if you could just hand out commands like candy, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and you had all the money, how would your heart handle it? Or to put it differently, what would that much power and authority reveal about your heart? Right? It revealed a couple of things about David's heart, right? That he, that he let it get to him, but he was ready to repent when he saw it. Could our heart handle this? Like, maybe even I would say, um, I'm not going to put any numbers on it. I don't know that I would do well. I don't know that I would do well. I mean... Sometimes I wonder if the greatest blessing that ever happened to any of us is that we didn't win the lottery. <laughs> like, <laughs> I pulled up to get a burger last night up here at Three B's, and it was parking lot was almost empty. But man, there was this pristine '69 Camaro sitting there, and I backed up next to it. It's like two spots away, and I took a picture and I sent it to my family. And I said, "If you're thinking about my birthday present," <laughs> I'm just like, "Wow." Man, if I won the lottery, anything between 69 and 73 would be perfectly fine. But then I end up being like that guy in the parable that Jesus told, where he's like, it was going really well for him. And what does he say? You know what? I need more barns. And I'd be like, yeah, that one's nice, but I'm going to want that one, that one, and that one too. You know what I'm going to need? I'm going to need a bigger garage, right? I'm going to need, I'm going to need a warehouse to hold all these cars, right? I mean, love your neighbor. Well, I'll take him for a ride. I mean, <laughs> My neighbor's going to love my cars, right? I mean, uh, maybe that's why I married someone with a heart with bigger mercy than mine because she'd just be like helping everybody on earth with my car money, right? I'm just, I don't, (laughs) no, we're building a great big house and everybody's coming to live with us, yeah. (laughs) We've got orphans galore, yeah. Um, but just this idea of even discontentment where we think, and I have this conversation a lot with, with some of my friends, like, I've told you guys this before. This happened again just the other day. When I bring up the idea of contentment, oh, that is absolutely ridiculous idea. Contentment? Really? Contentment? That just means you don't work hard enough and that you need a little more gumption, man. You need to go after it. And I'm like, wait a minute, just... Weren't you the guy that just told me that if you retire now, you won't be able to maintain your lifestyle? That's just, right. You need one more thing, right? And, and, and don't hear me saying this, okay? I'm not trying to relativize sin because we do this all the time too. Like, 
Well, a sin's a sin is a sin, and David was a murderer and all this. But hey, nobody's perfect. I'm not trying to, that's no, that's not the way to approach this. Just look at his consequences. Look at what he had. This is what we say when we're trying to rationalize our sin or probably someone else's sin. Right? Hey, remember David. David wasn't perfect, neither is that guy. We should forgive him. And what I'm trying to say is, is that all of our hearts will deceive us. My heart will deceive me, and I've got this sin that I wish I could manage better, right? Get into sin management mode and behavior management mode, but I realize that there's a sin underneath that sin, and there's probably one underneath that one. I've got this idol, but there's a bigger idol underneath that idol, and there's probably another idol under there, and if you peel it away, you just keep coming to it, and because my heart deceives me. So you know what we need? We need mercy. We need mercy. We need someone to just pity us in our poor sinful state. Jesus died. We love this. Jesus died for my sins, not just the obvious ones. He died for the ones underneath those. And he not only died for my sin, I think it's safe to say he died for, and we're going to see this in Psalm 51, he died for my sinfulness, right? Why did David sin? Because he was a sinner, right? That's the old saying. We don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And if you go to Ephesians 2, there's these glorious, beautiful verses, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead in sin. You were dead in transgression. You weren't just feeling faint. You weren't just, you know, feeling kind of bad. You were dead. I was dead. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the power of the air. The spirit is who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. What is that? Following after the desires of our deceptive heart. Following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. Just David, with that biggie, (laughs) all of us. But listen, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in What? Mercy. Because he's so loving, he's got all sorts of mercy to hand out. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Like you were dead, you were shown mercy and you were raised. We're not just people who need a little bit of reform. We're dead people who need life. And it's mercy that brings it. So this is part one. Oh, golly, bum, we could just go all day. But, but Psalm 51's coming. 
Psalm 51 is coming, and it's what repentance looks like, and it's what it looks like when we know we need mercy. But I think we all this morning know we need mercy. So, um, maybe right now, you just look at the Lord wherever you are and say, Lord, I have evoked your displeasure. Um, I am by nature an object of that displeasure. It's in my heart. It's in there deep. Um, you love me. I need mercy. Shown in the cross of Jesus Christ where his love ran red, we sang it. I need to know and I need to believe that on that cross, Jesus bore my sin and the punishment my sins deserve and he is free to show you mercy. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Will you receive that today? Will you let the spirit just quicken your deadness open your eyes and to bring you life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we are so thankful for stories. And stories that aren't just myths, but stories that are true, but they're, they're real to our experience. And... Uh, God, there are a lot of ways we could rail against this story and that if we were the gods in this situation, we would handle things differently. Um, but we're not. We're, we're the Davids of this story. We are by nature objects of wrath. We will follow the desires and thoughts of our deceptive heart, the flesh, and Lord Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for mercy. And Lord, may we be able to see ourselves today as recipients of mercy. Pray that for every heart in this room, that we'll be able to see ourselves. That song we sang earlier about this, this patient, patient father, while we're out roaming like prodigal children, wasting stuff, wasting blessings, or even worshiping our blessings. You're the patient Father who draws us back home in the riches of love and mercy. God, that we could receive that right now, that we could open our hearts to that right now and open our, our hearts to that right now. And Lord, we're going to see in the coming weeks, those are the people that change the world The people who know they've been given a lot of mercy, they give a lot of mercy. <laughs> the people who know they've been given a lot of mercy, are, are, they want to tell about mercy. Get us there, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all. No singing. But you can leave with a song in your heart. Have a great week.